Samantha Ronson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How are you doing right now? I'm, you know, living the quarantine dream. Uh, whereabouts are you located currently? I'm in I'm in LA. Cool. At my house. And you're living in LA these days. I am. How long have you been living in LA? Fifteen years. Oh. And are you are you born in LA though, or were you born? No, born in London. Uh, lived in London until I was about six. Then moved to New York, and then moved here. Cool. Many cool. many moons after that. Nice. Um. So how how are you how are you maintaining in this whole isolation climate that we're in right now? Um. I am learning that I'm not as much of an introvert as I thought I was. <laughs> I definitely miss people. Um, I mean, I, I, I live with my girlfriend and um, her son, so I'm not alone, which is nice. And uh, But, you know, I miss my family. I miss my sister. I miss my niece and nephew. It's hard just being on FaceTime. I mean, FaceTime is nice, but it, but it is hard and... Getting any work done is basically impossible. So uh, uh, it, it feels like it, it feels it, it feels a little bit crazy to be honest. Because I'm wondering like what 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 will there be when like what's the normal gonna be when we get back to it? Totally. Try not to focus on too much. Kind of stand in the moment and today. Do you think that there will be uh, like a new normal, or is it is this gonna change us forever? I think we'll definitely be changed forever in that that fear that this could happen is will, will I think always be there and I think I, I just don't know how clubs are going to go back to normal I don't know how you know sweaty stinky clubs where everyone's like bumping into each other and touching each other I just I, I don't know what's going to happen there and that's kind of scary cuz that's that's where I make my living Right. Yeah. The uh, financial effects of this is going to be quite long-standing. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering. You know, right now a lot of DJs. I've I've done a couple sets for charity. I think a lot of DJs are doing things for charity, but I think it's gonna. I think that's gonna change soon once DJs. Uh, need it themselves. <laughs> you know. Totally. You've done a. You did a live stream just recently with DJ City. I saw um, and Just Blaze and Spider. It was a bunch of people on that. Um, how did you feel that went? Like for you, how was that whole process getting set up for that? Well, thanks to you, I had um, <laughs> the equipment I needed. Um, but it was strange, you know, because because my I've been an open format DJ for twenty twenty something years. Twenty years. And I always feel like what I'm best at is reading a room and playing for the room. And I have no idea where the fucking room is anymore because you're playing for for names in a chat room, you know? Like, I don't know what's working. I don't know what, you know, you feed off energy in a room. I do. Because I'm not, like, I'm not Calvin Harris. I'm not one of those DJs which plays my music and plays a, a show it's not like when my band you play your set and hopefully people like it this is like when in doubt you know used to be like michael jackson or whatever you just like figure out how to how to get the room going and it's weird it's yes. really weird hard to read the living room you know if you haven't got a 
a crowd in there. <laughs> There's no reaction. Yeah, it's like I've, I've DJed sometimes parties where I've been in one room and and the music's been piped through to multiple rooms and, you know, inevitably people will start in one room and make their way through. But when you're playing for the room you're not in, that's what it feels like. Have you ever played a silent disco? I have. I have, but at least when I've played a silent disco, they've been in front of me. <laughs> right, totally. Up totally. until this moment, silent discos were my biggest nightmare because I hate <laughs> doing them. They're, it just feels so, like, underwater. But and the last silent disco I did, I tried to talk the person whose birthday party was out of doing the silent disco. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, this is like a silent disco but also a blind disc it's a blind disco that's what it is it's a blind disco totally and i don't totally. like it at all um you just got a new dj controller for this um right um you're not typically a, a person who would use a dj controller how is how's that transition been in some ways it's been really fun because of all like the different like effects and stuff built in but uh i kept hitting the i kept hitting the play because i would my turntables were always set up battle style. Yeah. And these are not. And so I kept hitting like the play pause button with my hand when I'd be going to like switch over. And so it'd just be like, whoop. It's like, uh, yikes. Get back on again. <laughs> but it's been, it's been fun. I mean, it's definitely much lower maintenance. I don't have to worry about my needle not, not connecting properly or the, the record warping or, I definitely understand the convenience of it. For sure. But, but you started as a turntable. Like you're a vinyl DJ for a long time, right? I mean, still use turn I'm like the only DJ that still uses turntables pretty much. Not the only one, but one of very few. Uh, at least all t all clubs let me know that when I spin. They're like, oh, we have to dig out turntables for you. I'm like, okay, cheers. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you want me to DJ, that's what we're going to do. Um... But it is, there are definitely some differences, but but I think it's because uh, I didn't go for like the most expensive controller on the market. I went for like a mid-level one. So I'm sure if I got some super duper fancy one, it would be tables. Oh, sorry. Um, do you still collect vinyl? Like, do you still purchase uh, like vinyl twelve inches and stuff? Yes and no. Like, if I happen to be in like a record store or see something super cool yes but then i usually end up it's usually when i'm on holiday or away somewhere and then i'm like i'm not carrying these fucking things home <laughs> so no classic i don't even i mean i have turntables but my turntables are in storage because i didn't have anywhere to set them up i mean i have somewhere to set them up but they take up a lot of space for me not ever needing them until i need them now yeah on this live streaming thing, do you think people are going to continue live streaming after this whole kind of situation is resolved? If it, it does become resolved uh, and we do get back to kind of like being able to play in clubs, do you think live streaming is still going to be really important for, for a lot of um, artists? I think so, because I think especially uh, indie artists that can't afford to, to maybe tour or go to all the places they want to go to. I mean, I noticed somebody... <clears throat> in the chat when I did a live thing the other day being like, yay, come back to Manila. And like, I haven't DJed in Manila in probably a decade. Mm. And the demand has to be higher than one person in the chat room asking me to come to Manila. But 
Um, but I think it's cool to be able to spin all over the world from your living room. Have there been any any standout sets that you've seen? Like, um, with, like I think you mentioned that you were really impressed by Just Blaze's set that you were watching the other day. Yeah, I mean, Just Blaze is awesome. Um, I haven't been watching those battles. Oh, like um, the, the Teddy Riley babyface ones? Yeah, I've heard a lot about those. Um, every now and then, Sujit, my agent, will like send me a link to like drop in on somebody's live set. There hasn't been anything that's blown my mind, but um, I haven't really checked out that many, so there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's lots of time for that. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to quickly t- chat about regarding technology was that, yeah, you, you, you started out as a like a vinyl like collecting records DJ, then you made the switch to starting using Serato. Um, do you want to talk about what that kind of like leap in technology was like for you? Well, I remember being with AM in uh, Miami. We'd both done New Year's and we were in the lounge at the airport afterwards and he was just, no, we were in his hotel room before his set. And he was like, check this out. This program's so cool. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah nah, not, not trusting technology for this. Cause I was, and I was somebody who used, uh, Pro Tools at the time and those kind of programs that would crash mm. all the time. And so I was like, yeah, that seems like a really crazy idea. <laughs> and um, and so I was like, but you do that. You test that out. Because he was like, yeah, it's this company. Was it New Zealand or Australia? New Zealand. New Zealand. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try out something from New Zealand. I don't even, I couldn't even name you a city in New Zealand. <laughs> like, I'm not going to, it just seems so foreign and insane to me, you know? And uh, and I was like, but yeah, you do that, you do that. And so he kept doing it. And then he was so eager for somebody else to jump on it that he gave me his hard drive wow. for me wow. to start using it. So I would say basically it was, he was in December and I was flying back and forth to New York with my band and doing stuff like that. And I landed at LAX. This is going to sound so bougie and like whatever, but there were no sky caps. <laughs> and I had like four crates of records, a guitar, a keyboard, and a suitcase. And I had, there was no trolleys, there was no sky caps. And I was like, fuck this shit. And I called Adam and I was like, yo, <clears throat> I want to get Serato. And him and this other DJ, Scott Oster, he was he was using Serato at the time too. So Scott took me to like Melrose Mac and I went and got a Mac because like you had to have a separate computer for Serato. Everything had to be all that. And um, that was that. I switched over and that night I DJed with it, which was bonkers. But uh, And then you used to have to have you know, you had a power supply. You didn't run the you didn't run the power. You had a, the Strato box and then a power supply. And I think I still have. Hold on, I think I still have the, the thing. This was. I found this the other day. This was what I would put all my cables and wires in. Oh, cool! Is that like a cause thing? Yeah. So I got my little, my RCA cables. Yeah. It's like a cause bathing ape, maybe. Wow. 
had to be fly all the way across the board. <laughs> um, yeah, and so AM gave me his hard drive, and you know, that, then you had to at that point you had to tap in the BPM and you had to genre everything and all that. So that was probably springtime, early spring, and then for Christmas from I gave Mark my I gave him a hard drive. Your brother already. Mark. Yeah, my brother Mark already BPM. This was probably what two thousand and five or two thousand and six. Sounds about right. Yeah. And I had a lot of like epic fails in the beginning where like it would just crash, and none of the club promoters or the club owners wanted people using Serato because mm. they didn't trust it because they didn't want you to fuck up their whole vibe. Totally. So you're so you know you'd be sitting there being like no no it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine and then all of a sudden it's just like dead ass silence and you're like fuck I'm so sorry so I used to bring a crate of records with me still every gig until it went from bringing crates of records to bringing like our record to like being annoyed that you even had to have a power supply for the thing like we turned into such giant babies. <laughs> Sounds uh, like a uh, I think you you talked to, to me about this the other day there was a good uh, tw- uh, tweet. Twitter account, DJs complaining. Yes, DJs <laughs> complaining. I love it's that. It's so true. So specific to DJs, we're such a bunch of whiny little bitches. But like, we used to have to carry like hundreds of pounds of records up and down stairs, barefoot in the snow. And now it's like, now these motherfuckers get iTunes and they they can be DJs. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy to hear and you talk about like trading the hard drives. I, I've heard some pretty interesting stories from a couple of the people we've talked to. Um, about that and how that all of a sudden really opened up um, just this kind of ability to play a lot of different music and a lot of different genres in a night. Um, and, you know, like you've touched on it, you're, you, you know, you consider yourself an open format DJ. Um, I think pre-Serato, would you say it was a lot more difficult to, to play so many different songs or different genres in a night? It wasn't difficult. It was just heavy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you just had to... You just either had to plan your set properly and bring the stuff that you wanted. I mean, I always played all across the board because I like music all across the board. It just meant that you could play. You know what the difference was? It was like if you showed up at a party and they were like, no hip hop. Yeah. Your yeah. life wasn't over. Because you had access to other things. But I, th- I still noticed like a lot of people played not too far from what they played before. Mm. You know, you're used to playing the songs that you're playing, and then all of a sudden now you're like digging, you're staring at a laptop that's got ten thousand songs in it. You generally your eyes end up going to the ones that you songs you've already played because they're highlighted in green. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and you, I, mean, I feel like in that time, that you know, mid two thousands, people like yourself and obviously AM were really kind of at the front lines of this the sound. Um, what was that time like? I mean, that was. Uh, well, the clubs that you guys played at, and 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 you know, I was there. Were you ever part of the the banana split thing and all and the, and those kind of things? Yeah. Yeah, I did that. Um, I, uh, I mean, that was like where electro came out of, which then you know became that whole EDM shit. That was that was Steve, man. Steve Alcott. Uh, yeah, because banana split was him and AM. No. I'm not sure actually. Um, I figured. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Aoki and AM. Okay. If I remember correctly and uh steve was really the one that brought in that electro sound into like hollywood clubs am got into that and it was funny because that's when he got into like his hipster phase 
Um, cause he went from being like Mr. Hip Hop to like, I don't know, hipster. Uh, but it was, it was cool. I really loved that era because you could play. It was like finding cool shit on hype machine and, you know, really digging. And it was, it, we, we, we were still the people that turned other people onto music and you still got to, people were open-minded about listening to new shit. Now, if it's not like number one on iTunes, like people are like <laughs> bored, you know, like look at you, like what the fuck are you doing? DJs used to, used to break records, you know? And uh, people went to Banana Split to hear shit they hadn't heard before. And it was really cool. I remember the night I played, I just did an all mashup night, all like mashups that I'd made. Like I, I had done some session for some corporate company <laughs> where I had they had wanted mashups. They wanted each executive to get to design their own mashup. Wow. Like, yeah, which was cool, but which meant that, I mean, you couldn't fully do that. It was still limited to what instrumentals and acapellas I had and what technology you could you could have. Um, I had a, my brother, his engineer at the time, helped me so. You just needed a really good engineer for that sort of thing. And it was cool. So then when I went and did that banana split, like I had so many cool mashups that I'd made and that I had had a day to make each one. So they were all like pretty cool, like Johnny Cash mixed with 80s, mixed with like random hip hop. And uh, and that was what was cool about banana split is that, is that everybody played different shit and stuff that you hadn't heard nowadays. I mean, I'm sure that still goes on. I'm sure... There's parties like that, but I'm just not going to them anymore. So <laughs> but it seemed like a really special time musically where ever anything kind of where anything kind of went, you know? You obviously had a very close relationship with AEM. What was how how did you guys end up meeting and what was that time like? I mean, what was Long before I lived in LA, um we met He was in my music video when I was on Rockefeller. Uh, right. He and I made a mix, he and I made a mixtape together, two mixtapes uh, for Rockefeller. I knew him through through mutual friends out in LA when I'd come out to LA, and then obviously we would have him because I used to promote parties in New York. Even though I was a DJ, I also like to just promote parties, so I could just get paid to not have to work, just have higher mark to DJ and like have just a dope party. And so sometimes Am would come and spin those nights if he was in town. And uh, he and I were just close because he was just like sober. And I, I wasn't at the time, but he was, you know, just he was just a homie. Random question. Who started DJing out of you and your brother first? Mark. Oh, he did? Mark. Mark's, yeah, he got – Mark's older than me. He got uh, – he got turntables for his high school graduation gift in 93. I started spinning in 98. Like he was already well established by the time I started DJing. But did you, uh, you guys grew, were obviously pretty close being brother and sister. There was some, uh, is he older than you or who's, who's the older? He's older. He's the older one. Okay. He's older. And yeah, he's a couple years. 
so did you guys kind of like play a lot of music together? Did you guys both play instruments together? Like Mark's like the older brother and definitely big brother vibes, you know? So, uh, he was not, he was in his own world and doing his own thing. I have a twin sister. So like there was like Mark and the twins. So, uh, when we were, he was always making music. He was always doing that kind of stuff. I didn't really get into music till I graduated high school and was out of the house. Cause I was, I thought I was like, Oh, music doesn't just follow you. You have to provide your own. <laughs> what the fuck? So, um, so yeah, I got into music away being away from, from my, my stepfather started the band foreigner. So that's, you know, we grew up in that house of just music and he wrote all the songs, produced the stuff. So, once Mark went to college and and then I went away, I was like, oh, I don't have any music. Like, I literally had no music. I had no CDs. I had nothing. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. I was like, wait, whoa, what happened? So uh, that's how – then I just, like, pillaged my stepdad's record collection. And that's how I basically got started DJing. That's crazy to think of how boring life is without music, hey? I mean, it's crazy. I, what I did have was a Hitsville USA, which is like a Motown box set, and the Macarena. <laughs> Do you like that new that new uh, Tiger song that samples the Macarena? I mean, I kind of love it because of like the nostalgia, memory so association. I, yeah, but I mean, listen, I, I would I would not, definitely not call myself a Tiger fan, but that taste record was so. <laughs> fire that like I, i'll i'll give his i'll give his record to listen these days yeah that's a great beat hey i love that beat oh so good i gotta yeah i gotta give so it to tiger he's got really impeccable beat selection like um that that guy he works with da Dorman. yeah fire beats i mean his taste is literally no pun intended <laughs> like fire yeah yeah, and he was on Mustard Stuff early on, too. So that was, I mean, right there, he was already on Good Beats. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't, I could definitely probably couldn't pick his flow out of a lineup, but, like, those beats are great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is, a, this is a part that we kind of, you just touched on, but we, I think it's worth uh, a bit more investigation. Um, can you t- talk about your, your record deal with Rockefeller Records? Like, how did that come about? <laughs> uh the bad old days um well i was i always like wrote songs like so i i was signed as a singer songwriter um and uh oh god and i knew damon dash from the clubs and stuff and he uh we were hanging out one night at some party i dj'd at like the mercer the sub mercer which was like a little club in the basement of the mercer hotel in new york and Damon was just like, what have you been up to? I haven't seen you. I was like, ah, I've been putting this demo together. And I played it for him. And he was like, this is you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, "Like, what are you doing on this? I was like, singing, playing, writing. And he was just like, ah, I'll take that. <laughs> and basically, I got a, he signed me to Rockefeller Records. And uh, I was just like, only if the island, you know, because it was, they're partnered with Island Def Jam. So I was like a violent Def Jam are on board to help out, you know, to like give their two cents because this is not a hip hop project. I met with them. They were on board. I mean, maybe it was begrudgingly, but they were on board. 
And then as we were about to put the project out, Julie Greenwald and Lior Cohen left Island Def Jam and went over to Atlantic. Mm. So I was like, oh, <sighs> fuck. Okay. It was a shit show. It was uh, Big Face Gary was my A&R. He, his reference for me was Alanis Morissette, which is I sounded nothing like. Um, I I just I was working with a lot of people who didn't have any have any frame of reference when it came to, came to the genre of music I was doing. Like Duncan Sheik was producing my record. Hmm. Like hmm. it couldn't be less like hip hop, you know, like singer songwriter in '90s vibes. And then I ended up working with Dallas Austin. I actually worked with Kanye when his jaw was wired shut. Wow. Yeah, we did some records together. Um, I was well, I wasn't doing anything, and Damon was like, "All right, we're gonna have you work with Just Blaze and Kanye." I was like, "Obviously." Most Rockefeller. Um, you could get. So I got sent out to LA, and I went to the W Hotel with G Roberson, who was. Uh, in our over at Rockefeller at the time, I think he, I think now he is. I mean, he's a big shot now. I don't know what for who or what. Maybe he manages Kanye. I'm not sure. But so he, um, so we get to the hotel room. Kanye's jaw is wired shut. He's got insure on the table. Like that was not a. He did have an insure for dessert. Like that was not a joke. And um, he starts playing me his record, and he starts playing me Jesus Walks. This is, and uh, I'm just like all the all the the college the first record, yeah, yeah, college dropout. And I was just like, why do they have me in with a Christian rapper? I'm like a Jewish kid. Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, what am I? I was just like, I didn't have a lot of faith in anybody. I was young and arrogant. And I was like, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm the only one that knows what I want, right? But um. Kanye and I hit it off. We had a great time. We made some records together. He had uh, he had a lot of respect for me for my knowledge of music and songwriting and all that kind of stuff. And I obviously had respect for him because I think he's such an incredibly talented producer. And we had a lot of similar tastes and fashion and things like that. So we totally got along. I mean, the songs were not good. Um, <laughs> but we had a good time. And uh, those songs are in my iTunes somewhere. Uh, I think we we sampled. At one point, we were just like both at a loss. And he was like, what's your favorite record? So I went out of the car and got my What a Fool Believes, Michael McDonald. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, um, which was my favorite record at that time. And we sampled that. Then when Mark heard it, Mark was like, hmm, kind of hard for you to put your voice against his. Michael McDonald or Kanye West? My voice against Michael McDonald. <laughs> yeah. Mike's got a distinct flavor. Mm. He's like, that wouldn't have been, I would not have done that. I was like, thanks. Still, got, it's okay. a hot sample though. I'm sure it sounded pretty fire. Yeah, it was, and it was, and it, it's very much that sound that he had at that time too, that, you know, that weird like keyboardy sound he had. Uh, it was funny. You told me a pretty interesting story about um, introducing him to a, a specific DJ. Um, a track. Yeah. Well, we had all done a show at, I 
Deal Real, I think it's called. I'm not sure if it's Real Deal or Deal Real. I think it's probably Deal Real Records in uh, in London. And Kanye performed, and I performed. Like, and by performed, I mean I like. I think I plugged my acoustic guitar into the back of a DJ mixer. It was horrible. It was all horrible. Good stories, horrible moments. <laughs> and um, a track played. A track played a set. Kanye played a set. I played a set. This tiny little record store, I think most deaf, played a set there either later on that day or the day before. It was really cool. It was really cool, like what they were doing there. Um, I wonder if anyone's doing stuff like that anymore. Uh, but um, I mean, talk about no corona. I mean, everyone was packed into this tiny record store, like literally like that, sardines. Um, but uh, yeah, so we played the thing and then. A friend of mine, maybe take her name out of it, thought he A Track was cute, cute little Jewish DJ from Canada. We she got his information, and then Damon had decided that I was gonna have to do a performance at a club that night. And I was like, I don't have a band. It's me. I don't have a band here. He's like, play to a dat. I was like, I don't play to a dat. I have a rock band. Like, it we don't doesn't work like that. And. And he's like, Jay-Z used to play to a dad. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I'm not a rapper. Like, you can't just put me in a thing. And, and I also, like, didn't have the swag of Jay. That was just like, oh, put me up, fucking drop shit anywhere. You know what I mean? I was just like, ah, I need a band. Um, and it was like a big, like, mega club in London that, like, was definitely not going to want to hear a girl on an acoustic guitar, like, get up and ruin their fucking champagne toasts. So uh, he's like, and he's screaming at me in the middle of the street outside his house with like a camera crew. It was, it was an awful time. But uh, so he was like, why don't you get that DJ a track to play with you? And I was like, play what? Like what you want me to just like sing over beats? Like I don't understand. And that's what we did. I think A-Track played the instrumental and I just like sang and played acoustic guitar over it. And then uh, it was very kind of him to do that. And then we hooked him up with Kanye. We introduced them and then that was that. Was that. Wow. Yeah. Such a, a like kind of amazing combo, those guys. They uh, went on to create and do some really cool tours and stuff. That's such a it's such an interesting story that you had such a big part of that too. I should get a check. <laughs> no, I, I cuz I, then I yeah, when we went to to the garden when it was John Legend and Kanye and Usher and A Trike was the DJ. It's pretty cool to see it all come to together. Well. So t tell me about the the band. You play in a band, and you still are recording music uh, in this band too, right? It's currently still has the same name, Ocean Park Standoff. Um, I'm not sure if it will keep the name once we put out the next project, but it's me and uh, it's producer Pete Nappy. Um, we put out some stuff on Hollywood Records. A singer left to go be a lead singer elsewhere. And so now we are going to do features, which means we can have all different kinds of songs and all different kinds of vibes, which is really kind of exciting. And we were getting ready to start work on that. And then 
Corona. So not doing much right now. I mean, listen, it's such bullshit. There's so much I could be doing. And this is what I've learned about myself through this. I have no discipline. Because I know so many people who are just like getting up every day, grinding and being like, I'm going to do this. Like bulletin boards, schedules. And I'm like... Yeah, so I got up around 11.30 today, made a cup of tea, had some granola, thought about maybe replying to some emails. I think, though, um, it's interesting how this is affecting everyone in a different way. You know, um, some of us are, like, taking this time to do certain things or focus on other things, and then other people, it's it, it weighs differently on everybody um, in its own way. You know, I think it's obviously quite a... It's a tragedy. What No, no, two, no two ways about it, really. It's just... Um, how we are coping, how everyone's coping, right? Like everyone's going to cope with it in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that it's not that I'm undisciplined and that I'm just, I just like, I just don't really know what to do and I don't know why to do it if I did. Do you know what I mean? Like, what, what, what am I fucking doing? Like, yeah, I could do a live set, but like, I, I, I did actually have a really good time doing it when I did it the other night um, because I, I it was on Instagram Live, so I saw people kind of chatting back a little bit. The last two, I didn't have any connection to viewers, but the whole point of what I did was to engage with other people mm. in like a, a limited way. I was still over here. And and so, so it's just weird, and, and it's just like what will there even be when we get back to it and it's scary it's scary like I, I do I need to figure out a new career do like I saw to a friend of mine who's at a record label and he was just like you know streaming numbers aren't up the way they thought they would be and and uh there's no like artists aren't making any money because you can't tour you can't do anything and so it's just like I feel like at this point, like the live DJ sets, it's a bit saturated. Like every, I look at my Instagram and I open it, I see live, 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 live. And so I just, it's just weird. I just don't, I don't really know what to, to do. Uh, there's stuff that I'm working on that I, that I don't really talk about things until they're ready to be shared because I feel like a lot of people talk a lot of shit about a lot of things and then you're like, whatever happened to that? And they're like, who, mm. you know, what? um so i do have you know other projects that i'm working on outside of music but but i do spend a lot of time stressed out about like what the fuck i'm gonna do with my life like i'm like 15 again wondering like who i'm gonna be when i grow up i think that's one of those things those questions that we do ask ourselves constantly throughout our lives right i mean even if everything's fine sometimes i find out i'm all ask myself that same question but it is interesting, you know, like no one's getting paid for those IG streams. You know what I mean? Like people are putting some really crazy amount of work into them and they're not necessarily seeing the compensation. You know, like you said, gigging is such a huge part of the, you know, the creative community, you know, economy, I guess, if you will. Um, and it's not quite set up that same way for streaming. And, and I mean, I, I think from my understanding of the way, you know, royalties work, um, a lot of streaming income and, and so forth is not sufficient enough to have a career based off of it, you know? Um, Absolutely not, yeah. And so so touring is such a big part of of the, you know, the income. And the merch that you sell when you're touring. Right. 
But uh, it's interesting to see some people, I mean, there's a massive discussion, um, and I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on this, you know, I mean, Instagram and Facebook obviously are really not set up, and they don't really uh, support, uh, you know, DJs playing music because they don't have the copyright you know, law set up with the agreements with the record labels and so forth, whereas other platforms, uh, I mean, maybe YouTube and uh, and Twitch, uh, I, know, I know YouTube is it's definitely a different thing again, but you know, there's certain platforms that do allow for monetization and and things like that. And I noticed that you know your DJ City stream was on Twitch. Do do you are you using Twitch as a platform, for example, or do you just want to use IG? Um. Well, I mean, I reached out to a friend of mine on Instagram because I, when I use Instagram, I got kicked off after an hour, and so it's just like, okay, well, listen, I'm down for a one hour set, but you're kind of just getting your groove at that point. One hundred percent. Uh, I need to I need to figure out how to extend that thing because if you sh- get off, then you have to re-get on, and then everyone has to re-sign back on again. That sounds like a pain in the ass. It's like getting um, kicked out the club and then having to stand in line to get back in. Yeah, so you're just like, mm, nah. Um, and once you like lose that flow, you lose that flow. It's literally like when you would be playing with the original Serato and you would get the shit would crash, and then you had to get the dance floor going again. It's it's uh it's kind of a nightmare. So trying to figure that out. Um, I do want to use Twitch, but I I don't have any followers on Twitch, so I feel like that would be a hard place to start, you know. But I guess you only get followers if you use it. I don't know. So uh. I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, considering I'm not getting paid for it anyway, it's kind of like I don't. I, I like have ADD and then go off on another thought about like a butterfly that just went by. <laughs> That's the end of that internal conversation with myself. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I went on Twitch the other day, and and it's been a learning process. I've had to. I feel like it's part of my job to kind of understand how this technology works and and to be able to kind of provide some insight to the people that I work with and. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy, especially the fact that IG. I mean, I started a, a thread on it about on, it, on Twitter today about it, and I noticed that a lot of people are really kind of torn, you know, because kind of like you said, you've got your fan base on Instagram, and people go are already there. It's for everybody, um, and Twitch is kind of known as this like gamer thing, and you know, people don't really know it, they don't know how it works, and I think a lot of people are afraid that if they go on there, they only have you know five or ten or twenty or a hundred people when they're used to having thousands, you know, and you know, that's, um, that's scary. Like you said, it's scary for people, but I, I think that, um, just the ecosystem of the way a, a, a company like Twitch is set up and, you know, the fact that they do have these agreements in place with record labels and, uh, they do have the technology already kind of the infrastructure set up for gamers, you know, already, it's just a matter of like kind of migrating that over to the DJ and musician community and getting them comfortable with that as this place for that and understanding the strengths of it. You know, I think, you know, you make certain content for Instagram that is, you know, like a picture, you know, that's exactly what it started out as. And then when people got on Snapchat, then they got into doing stories and then people, same thing happened. Like, do we go and put our stories on Instagram now? Cause they've got stories, you know, and, they used to do that on Snapchat, and then I mean, who does anyone use Snapchat anymore? I mean, I don't know. And you know, I mean, before there's there's countless uh, platforms that have come and gone, but uh, I think the good thing is um, every every kind of platform has its strength, and and perhaps um, it'll be interesting to see if if 
people can make the right co uh, content that will be good for Twitch, which is more streams. Um, so yeah, I think that if people can can understand streaming better and understand like um, you know the the good the good way to approach streaming, I guess maybe like a radio station. I think you know I think you've touched on some really important things like creating a, a vibe in your living room is a lot harder than creating a vibe in a club when people are there to get wasted or <laughs> and dance and do those sorts of things. Is you know your dog or your cat in your living room isn't going to give you that same energy so. Sure as shit or not. <laughs> so it's it's a different it's a different headspace and it's like you're you're basically having to kind of convince yourself that what you're doing is really is really cool you know um, that can be kind of uh, stressful on us as creative people because we I think uh, would you agree that we all kind of question ourselves and what we're doing if it's cool and valid all the time. I would call myself DJ codependent. Like, it's just like a total people pleaser. Like, what do, do they like this? Oh my God, I feel like they don't like this song. Wait, what? What are they? Where are they going? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the whole time. Like, and so I, I don't know why people sign in and sign out and do whatever they do. And I probably shouldn't have done my first set up against the One World at Home <laughs> concert. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, stiff competition. But it was also like, but it was, I just wanted to test it out. It would be cool if, if there was a way to do across multi-platforms. Do you know what I mean? Like if I could do, if I had more outs from the Serato controller and then I could go from into my, into iPhone one for Twitch into iPhone two for Instagram or whatever else. But, but I need a booth monitor out. So there goes that. <laughs> I'm sure we can work something out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the other this discussion is just getting money, and I, I, th I think the whole world is, I mean, would you agree that the the whole economy is is gonna be so heavily impacted from this? It's not just DJs, musicians. It's like a world. No, it's every anybody who's a non-essential worker, basically. Yeah. And and you know, like, you know, bar anybody in restaurant, anybody who's entertainment of any kind or. And and also like if people aren't making money, people aren't people can't spend that money. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Even if maybe we were in the club, even if we were back to clubs, like would people be spending money on drinks because they're not making any? Yeah, I, I, it's it's such an unknown, and I think that's the scariest part, right? It's just we don't know. And yeah, you know, I just try to be as remember to be grateful and appreciate, you know, that I have my health. That that these are all. Any problem that I have right now is because I have my health. So, you know, I just have to remember to, you know, I'm sober. So there's like a lot of things in sobriety where you have like gratitude lists and <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> but like, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I've been going to more Zoom meetings, AA meetings now than I've probably been to more Zoom AA meetings than I had regular meetings in my six years of sobriety like it's just because it's so easy and you're just like someone's like there's an AA meeting on right now why don't you pop in you watch it and you're like yes because I need if everybody could go to an AA meeting once a day they would the beauty of the what the whole idea of just taking things one day at a time and focusing on what you have and not what you don't like those kinds those kinds of practices are so necessary right now that I think it's really what's kind of keeping me from 
going into the dark side of like, what if I never work again? You know? And, and so, yeah, I just have to remember that like anything, any moment that I'm focused on the negative is just a waste of time. And, you know, it's like that old adage, like shit in one, shit in one hand, hope in the other, see which fills up first. Do you know what I mean? I haven't heard that but adage, it's, but it's, <laughs> it's a good one. And, and, you know, it's the idea of like, it's a stretch of how I'm making it work for me right now. But, but it's like the idea of like, you know, just one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, focus on what you have as opposed to what you don't have. And, and just trying to be grateful for so many people have nothing. So many people are dying right now. Like we forget about that. Like we're, we're so lucky. We're so draped in the privilege of having our health that we don't even look at the fact that like we're home because there's people who have lost everything. They're literally dead. And that's why we're at home right now. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we're not dead. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah. It's um, it's definitely a time to count your blessings if if you if you can think of the good things for sure. It's interesting um to hear about sobri- sobriety um, because I I don't think that's something that uh DJs talk about a lot um. You know, and the nature, you know, you you still DJ and and um and you're sober. You said you're sober for six years. Mhm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um. Just six years last month. Wow. Yeah, it's it's um it's something that I think uh is really important to talk about as a, as the for the DJ community because um of the nature of our industry being kind of surrounded by you know uh addictive personalities and substances. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty you know it was really weird when I first got sober because I feel like people don't really know what to do with me because they're like here, have a shot. Here, do this. I'm like, yeah, I don't drink. And like people, people don't really know how to connect necessarily. And, and then people feel like self-conscious or weird or like, cause they're drunk and you're not drunk. And all of a sudden they feel drunker because they realize that you're not on the same wavelength as them. And, and I felt really weird DJing. You know, I would laugh. I would see pictures of other DJs like doing this, doing the same party and, you know, their DJ booth would be filled with people and bottles and people doing shots and wasted. And then you'd see me in the booth and it's just me <laughs> and like, a <"All> right, <laughs> and like maybe a friend. And, and, uh, and I started to get really self-conscious about it because I was like, am I not fun anymore? Like, but I know that my DJ sets are definitely better because I don't think at like two in the morning that like new kids on the block is like the best idea ever, you know, like I don't get drunk and fucking steer the course in in, like a weird way. But, but it is weird because it's kind of, you know, I didn't say it earlier, but I was thinking it like when I first started DJing sober, I felt like I was DJing for a different room Mm. and kind of what it feels like right now when I'm DJing on an Instagram live and I don't have the room because it feels like I'm on such a different wavelength. And, you know, it took a while, but now it's just it's just my new normal. So I know that Instagram Live, I know that we, we as humans can adapt to anything because the only thing constant is change. So I know that whatever comes next, we'll figure out a way to get there. Because, I mean, look at the, I've been watching the PBS country, uh, Ken Burns country music documentary. And if you think about it, like, shit back in the day 
the music that was played on the radio was live. They weren't playing records. Do you know what I mean? Like wow. bands were playing on the radio. So, you know, the music business and, and, and the entertainment world has, has gone through crazy, crazy changes over the decades and we'll adapt. We always do. It's just right now we just have no control and we as humans want to control things. And that's kind of like the whole AA thing is like hand it over to God and just trust, you know, not everyone believes in God or whatever it is, but trust that somebody else has it. And a friend of mine has this joke. It's like, Jesus better take the wheel because he sure as hell didn't take the key to the minibar. And I think about that sometimes because it's like, God, I hope somebody else is in charge because if it's up to me, we're fucked, you know? So it's just like basically just like, man, just have faith that everything's gonna, everything will be all right in the end if it's not the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. That's, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting to hear your your story about the transition too from, uh, you know, obviously did you know, without prying too much, but you know, was um, kind of the cause of getting into into a position where you needed to go to AA or or become sober was a lot of it due to the fact of playing in nightclubs, or DJing. Yeah, I mean, I can't blame blame DJing, but you know when. I know drugs weren't drugs aren't part of my story. I was never into drugs, but you know, like every night you're spinning, it you start you start to realize that like if people don't drink every night, like those people who are out in front of you dancing, this is their big night out. But my big night out is every single night, and you know, because you're traveling or like, and you're in an airport and you're like, oh. It's, five o'clock somewhere or whatever the thing is because you're on a plane or you're in a casino or you're in a hotel or it just started to be just kind of one big blur of just not really much concept of kind of anything do you know what I mean but like I, my life you know people are like you know my life became unmanageable my life was totally manageable because I had people that were hired to make sure that I sh you know, I had greeters that met me at the curb to make sure I got to the plane. And then on the other end to make sure I got to the curb. And I wasn't a drunk. I wasn't like a fall down drunk. I wasn't, I wasn't a mess. I didn't not show up to work. I didn't fuck up at work. I just like realized at a certain point that like I was drinking when I didn't want to be drinking. Mm. And I was drinking for other people. I was drinking to make other people tolerable. I was drinking to hang out with the promoter at the end of the night to make him feel good. Like I was having a good time and, when people would send me shots, I would do shots and and that kind of shit. And I was just like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like this feeling. I don't like the idea that like I will feel shitty until I get started again tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like it was started again later. And yeah, I mean, without making this about me, I can definitely relate to that, and I think that's why I think it's important to talk about. Um, because yeah, I mean, if. You that's a, it's a hard it's a hard reality to come to. I mean, I haven't been to AA, so I cannot say I I, I relate a hundred percent. But I think it's just a very important thing to to discuss because I think a lot of people and I can definitely remember where I where I started drinking to make myself feel comfortable about what I was doing, and I, and I didn't I don't need that. Unfortunately, I think for both of us, or especially in your situation, to be able to come to that realization on your own without um, it um, coming to kind of like a head where 
you know, we've seen people like Avicii, you know, they just never really got the chance to get there. They just missed that opportunity. And it's tragic. It's very sad. And, um, and if you don't have the right people around you, you know, then they're not, they're not going to support you. If, if, if this is so, a lot of this, this kind of, uh, this, this regular drinking is so normalized and accepted socially that if you can't come to that conclusion yourself and you don't have good people, you will just continue on and potentially just disappear with it. Well, yeah, I mean, and depression is part of my story. And I am, I do take, and I'm not ashamed of it, I take Zoloft. I take an antidepressant every day. And when you take an antidepressant with whiskey every day, they counter each other out. And so I I got, you know, it gets dark and you get lonely. And the DJ lifestyle is lonely. It, it Like people think like it's so fun and you're doing all this and it's so wild. And it's like, it's not. I'm by my, I, I'm not, I've never had an entourage. I've never been that person. Like my friends all have jobs. That's why they're my friends. Cause they're interesting. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, they're too busy to come hang out with me. So it would be me and the greeter at the airport. And then me and the driver who drove me to wherever I was going and me and whatever promoter it was and at dinner. And then it's, and then did you see a star is born? I did. Yeah. Do you remember when he leaves the stage and he has that high-pitched noise in his ear when he gets in the car? Yeah. And I've yeah. never related to anything more because it's it's that. You get out of the club and you've had all this adrenaline and alcohol or whatever it is. And you've got your booth monitor blaring in your ear and whatever it is and your headphones. And then you get out and you're in your hotel room alone and your ears are ringing and it's quiet as fuck and you're just by yourself and you're either coming down from alcohol or whatever other people's choices are. And it is so depressing and lonely and sad. And and then you just do it again and again and again. And eventually, eventually I was, I had, you know, I quit smoking and I replaced cigarettes with alcohol and for three days, for for three days, I was played this festival in Mexico and whatever else. And it was insanity. I was like playing this like I was the only non EDM artist. Afrojack was headlining, and the audience was definitely not my audience. But you know, anytime I lifted the bottle of whiskey up, they got excited. So I probably went through like half a bottle of whiskey in like my hour set. And it was just not cute, and that's when I realized that like, nah, nah, this isn't going to go well. And I got home to LA and I was just like, I sat there and I was like, if I don't quit now, people are going to start to tell me I should quit. Mm. Once people Mm. tell me to quit, I'm never fucking quitting. (laughs) So I quit and, uh, haven't had a drink since. And, uh, I'm so grateful that I quit when I quit because my life was still in, in, in all its put together pieces and I didn't fuck anything up. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't, I hurt myself mostly. And you know, when you stop drinking, the antidepressants start to work and it's a whole new world and it really changed everything. And, and my life, you know, my, my life is, Oh, so far from where it was you know when I heard about Avicii I I I was just like man like I I get it it looks like it's the funnest job of of all and it really can be and it really is in so many ways but it's also so fucking lonely like being on the road is lonely I don't care who you are like 
And if you're the kind of person that has 100 people around you, it's because you can't be alone and you're probably lonely anyway. I remember, you know, really missing Adam when I got sober because he was sober and he would, that was, you know, he wasn't until he wasn't. But, um, you know, he and I had talked right before the week before he died. We, cause we had a plan to meet the day, the day he died, we were supposed to have met for lunch in, in LA. Um, but he was still in New York, but, uh, I mean, that was our vague plan we'd made the week before, but, um, you know, he was, he was texting me. It was late at night and I was like kind of irritated. He was like, you know, who, who am I to be doing this? Who am I to be doing this show? And I was like, you're the guy that made it. You're the guy that went from being a crackhead to being DJ AM to being able to help other people. And he's like, man, I, I just, I, it's, I don't, I should like basically implying that he was a fraud and he didn't deserve it. And this out of the other. And, now knowing that he was doing drugs, yeah, you know, I get it. But at the time, I just didn't. I was just like, "Bro, you're good. You're good. It's you're you're the guy. You you're the dream. You made it." And I was like, it's, "It's all good. It's all good. Let's get together when we get we'll get cheese." We used to go to this Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills and get this mozzarella marinara. And I was like, "Let's get cheese uh, when we get back to LA," you know. And then then when he died, I was just like, "What the fuck?" Like, it was so crazy. And then when I got sober, I was, it really like, it really made me miss him because I knew that he was one of the few people that understood what it was like to do what we do sober. And, uh, and I never really drank until I drank a lot. But, you know, when he and I were friends, we were close because he was sober and I wasn't, I didn't do drugs. I was rarely drunk. So, so it was just a weird, it was weird. That's weird that we ended up in this conversation, <laughs> but we're like talking about mental health. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a real, it really made me miss him. Like, obviously I missed him, but like, by by that point, like, it was like, damn, like, I wish there were more like him. So I guess maybe I need to be more vocal about it so that there are other people know that you can do what we do and be sober. Yeah, I think that, mm. I mean, it's, it's very, I'm very honored that you're able to kind of speak about this like this because it's such a personal experience. But I, I do think sharing that is like so beneficial for so many people. And, uh, you know, whether they're touring the world or they're just playing it at the same club every day, uh, you know, it's I think it's a it's a very relatable experience um and it's great to hear that you know you can come out the other side of it and I think that's the real win here is that some people won't make it or haven't made it to the other side but there is this the story that you've you of you of you who have made it to the other side yeah, I mean, day three of my sobriety it was Sujit's birthday party in Vegas and <laughs> And it was like one like Suja Palooza, do you know what I mean? Or scam anniversary or scam party, something in Vegas. And I had to spin at, uh, I don't know, Avenue or something in one of their clubs in Vegas. And I was just like, and everyone kept bringing me Jack and Cokes because they knew that's what I drank. And I like got to Vegas. I went straight to my room. I did my set. 
And I said, you know, I turned down the drinks or just pretended, put them aside, said thank you, and then went up to my room and then went straight to the airport. But it was it was a real test. So I figured if I could get through that on day three, I could pretty much get through anything. And, you know, it's, it's tough. It, it would be so much easier to just be drunk. But then I'd be drunk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then I'd have two problems. So... Just it's just easier not to drink for sure, and I think that especially as you get older, you really realize that um, because everything your body yeah. just doesn't process things the way they used to, you know. And and often when we do start drinking for the first time, we are so young, or you know, doing things when we're younger, and our our bodies can just kind of uh, we feel yeah, invincible, I, right? And that doesn't last forever. Yeah, I mean, there's been times when I've had so much sugar or so many Red Bulls that I wake up the next morning with a hangover and I'm like, Oh my God, this is what y'all fools do. Like a couple times a week. Like, no way, no way. I couldn't live that life anymore. And I don't think there's anything but, wrong at admitting that, you know, I think it's like, that's the maturity part, right? Is, is going, Oh, you know, that's not for me anymore. Yeah. I mean, if I was the person that could have like a drink and then drink water the rest of the night, sure. But like, that's not fun. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have a drink. <laughs> So, so I just don't have drinks. I drink tea. What's your favorite like, tea? Uh, there's this company, this French company called Mariage Frere. And so I really like the Marco Polo. That's like one of my favorites of the Paris breakfast tea. Um, but when I can't get that, I have PG tips on my rider. That's so English of you. So I have... I am. I'm, I'm English. I, I just. I actually just got my U.S. citizenship uh, in 2017. Congratulations. Thank you. Very excited about it. But I'm English. My parents are English. English through and through. Do you go? Uh, what would you say? Actually, I've got a really interesting question for you about um, that. Being an English and American person, um, there is a very interesting kind of uh, a cultural exchange between the, the U.S. and England. And um, I think that you, I'd be really great to get your perspective on it because forever it seems that uh, something that will be created in, in America, usually in you know marginalized communities, uh, African-American music, for example, that will kind of fly under the radar in America will get picked up in, in the UK and then will kind of get, um, I guess, mixed up and, and, and changed in, into a kind of English style. And then it will get exported back to America, and then it will become extremely successful. And I think there's several examples of this. You know, the Rolling Stones, uh, the Beatles, of course. Um, but even you know later on, you've got you know drum and bass, and and more recently grime. Um, what what why is that? What is it between? What do you think it is? See, I don't even think of grime as having any American roots at all. But I guess you say it does. Well, I mean, just hip hop. You know, really. It's... Um. You know, it's funny because I remember Damon tried to sign this or did sign some English rappers back during that trip when we were all in London, me, Kanye, and whoever else. And I remember laughing and being like, you can't have an English rapper. You can't have some English rapper rapping with an English accent. It just sounds dumb. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and now some of my favorite rappers, some of my favorite rap records that have come out over the last few years are grime records and they're fucking English rappers. Like, I love Skepta. Like, I love, uh, oh, fuck, now nah, I'm going to have, like, a b complete brain fucking. I mean, listen, the fact that there's an English rapper named Dave is my favorite thing that's ever happened. 
you know, my mate Dave around the pub, you know, <laughs> Dave. It's so English, like Dave, like Dave. Yeah. Which I guess yeah. is that crazy thing is the biggest American rapper is Travis Scott. So which isn't which even is his like, name. I know. Who picks like the weirdest, like whitest, like, like, like uncle name? Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like Travis. Could be a country you know, artist. Travis. Yeah. Exactly. He literally sounds like a country artist. Travis Tritt or whatever. <laughs> Travis Scott. But, um, yeah, I guess, well, I remember, like, I, shit, I mean, my brother blew up in England before he blew up here. I remember the Strokes blew up in England before they blew up in America. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, like, has to could get the English stamp of approval to be cool and then come back here. Um, but yeah, I think people just kind of sweat England, you know, Americans think England is just like, just that bit cooler and fancier and whatever else. And you got the Anglophiles, but, um, I think there's an authenticity that English culture kind of sprinkles over everything you know what i mean like english people just don't give a fuck and they will tell you how they feel and they will tell you how you feel and it's like there's just like an honesty there's just an honesty that english people have that americans americans have this like fake kindness careful now <laughs> no do you know what i mean though but like americans are are polite and or feel like they need to be in a way and like an english person will just be like you're a fucking idiot fuck off <laughs> and uh and so there's something that like if if you get the stamp of approval in england like you you must be pretty cool yeah i hear you um but then again like most of the cool shit comes from here like jordans and fucking hip hop culture and hip hop in general and like there's not like what what has come England originally that's that's great originally like it didn't have any influence from anything anywhere else yeah uh, like baked beans <laughs> fish and chips fish and chips uh, but like what else um i'm thinking i'm thinking burberry jackets i like burberry jackets from england Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. English like countryside, shit. Yep. Hunting. Yeah. Hunting shit. Fashion. There's some good fashion. I gotta give uh, good props to uh, English fashion. But it's not necessarily cool. It's classic, and America has America's just younger in general. Yeah. Like the cool English shit is like for like your grandma, <laughs> like hunter boots. Do you know what I mean? And like. The hunting jackets and all that fucking shit. But, like, I guess punk rock, Vivian Westwood, but rock and roll came from America first, right? And then England made it cool. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the thing is, though, is for sure that, you know, the, the English take on things is also very, very cool. And there's no denying that when something that's American gets taken to England and it does change and evolve and become, uh, you know, I guess, innovated and, and so forth that there is a certain swagger that comes with it. And, and I think everyone can appreciate that. It's, um, especially these days, I'm, I've noticed in, um, 
you know so much of the african diaspora that's that's be, you know become a part of the english culture has uh you know spawned so many cool um, you know genres with the with the overarching afrobeat genre not just from the african countries but also there and then you think about all the cool you know kind of mix up that happened in the in the 70s with you know the cross pollination between jamaican music and rock music and blues and stuff that was happening in in in, in the uk at the time it's it's all that cross-pollination of, of melting pot of cultures that uh, the, that both America and um, the UK and Europe kind of provide that, that creates such beautiful sounds and, and culture, you know? Yeah, I have to say, you know, because I work with Beats 1. Well, I had been. I don't know what Beats 1 is anymore now that... Uh, who knows that if, if, if I'll be there when it, when it gets back. But, um, you know, and the great thing about that is that because it's world, you know, beats one worldwide is their whole vibe that, you know, I've, I've been introduced to so many different artists and different genres and different sounds from all over the world that I would never have heard if I was just like, fuck, what do I need to play at the club on Friday? You know? And like, there's all these, these different artists that I like, like Michael Kiwanuke. I think he's English, um, but like he's got like a, but he has like a cool kind of jazzy kind of funk kind of sound, but very, mod, but still somehow modern. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of different African artists that, that were played a lot. Um, I can't think of, 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 I can't think of names, obviously, because my brain is sponge. Um <laughs> But it, but it, it, but it is interesting, and I do. Uh, I, 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 Mark came and heard me. Mark came and heard me doing this event recently, and Mark's like, "How do you have all this? Like, how do you keep up with all the new shit?" Like, I was playing like the baby and some other stuff that was like back in January, and I was like, and I was like, "Beats one." <laughs> like, I, I just make sure that I'm up on the playlists, and and I know. And the cool thing about Beats one is that they actually. They've actually, you know, they launched Billie Eilish, you know, they like they played Alessia Caro when she was a SoundCloud artist, you know, and uh, and a lot. And because Julie Adenuga, who's the English kind of the, the main person in London, her brothers are Septa and Jamie. And so uh, and so. She plays a lot of cool like I think that's why there's so much grime gets played on, on beats one and it gets introduced and uh it's it's pretty you know and ebro is the new york guy and i think he's actually now head of all of uh so i don't know programming yeah but i think i think uh i don't know which programming but anyway but but it's cool because like because of the grime sound in London, like it, it's kind of infected uh, hip hop kind of across the board. And it's not, and it's just like, everything's kind of becoming the opposite of homogenized. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's still, it's all kind of infecting each other, but at the same time, keeping its place, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> It's kind of interesting, but uh, sure. but I appreciated 
having that world opened up to me because otherwise it's hard sometimes, you know, like the last thing I really want to do most of the time is listen to new music. Like I, I, my, my brain is full. I'm good. But then I'm like, shit. All right. Who's Roddy rich and who the fuck is this person? And let me fucking like make sure I know what I'm talking about. When these, I did, I did this, my friend's kids bar mitzvah in December and everyone, they were all asking for Roxanne. I was like, look at these kids knowing the police. What is this? Great. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not that one. I was like, oh, yikes. <laughs> like, this is the song. That. Turn it up. And it's like, no, no, that that. No, 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 we don't want that one. Um, thankfully, I, I asked them first. I was like, by the police? And they're like, no. And then they couldn't understand why I couldn't just play off their phones mm. like i was like what? they're like just download it i'm like it doesn't work like that is serato change where can you download it and play it immediately or do you have to yeah. close the program first well actually now you can um you can if you have a title or a soundcloud account uh, uh you can basically stream music from their catalogs right in serato so you don't even need to download it it just streams right in and the software which is quite magic Oh, but only if I have Wi-Fi. Yes. Yeah. Got it. I mean, you'd, okay. You'd... But from Apple Music or Spotify. Well, and this, of course, you can put in a good word for us that Apple um, would love to have uh, Apple Music streaming <laughs> in <laughs> in Serato, but uh, it's not currently available or Spotify. No. Yeah, people get really mad. They're like, "Just play it off Spotify." I'm like, "I cannot." <laughs> Doesn't work. I well. cannot. <laughs> but you know. Okay, we've come a long way. Yeah, we have. That's um, I think yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Samantha, for your time. Um, it's uh, really great to hear your stories, and um, they're pretty magic stories. Um, and I, I really look forward to to hearing um more of your your sets on live stream, and um, if we don't get out of this quarantine sooner than later. <laughs> Definitely, it was really great. Thank you, and good luck editing this motherfucker. We really <laughs> we really ran the gamut. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. All right, Samantha, I'll, um, I'll see you soon. All right, cool. All right, All right take care. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Peace.